And now for another amazing episode of the Pop Zara Podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Pop Zara Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Evans, managing editor of PopZara.com, back once again to talk about something, well, to talk about books, to talk about publishing. That's right. We are going to talk about the crazy, leverithing world of publishing, self-publishing, cancel publishing, all the book stuff that you cannot get enough of because our special guest today on this episode is none other than Dr. Bernard Schweitzer, the creator, the founder, and the personality behind the new imprint, Heresy Press, a new press dedicated to publishing those that are or might have been seemed deemed unpublishable. Dr. Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nathan. Glad to be on. Oh, Thanks. thank you. Well, admit I had a little trouble setting up an intro for you on this one because I do want to make a statement up front that here at Popsar we are dedicated to being as apolitical as possible. And I say that not out of any cowardice. It's just because there's so much to cover in the in what we usually cover, and well, it can be, it can be it can be difficult when you when you deal with things like book publishing, video games, movies, whatever. You run the risk of offending somebody, but. I think in this particular case, I'm not sure if I mind anybody getting a little offended because we are talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is books. And what caught my eye, and one of the reasons that I did want to invite you to talk to this week, is because I, I'm a recent discoverer of Heresy Press, which you've started. And before I get off onto that subject, if you could maybe describe a little bit about what Heresy Press is and what sort of the founding principles were for it. Yes, so uh, Heresy Press is a disruptor in the current uh, publishing space, a space that has become increasingly um, conformist in the last few years. Things have changed. And, you know, whenever you ask somebody, they set the date slightly differently, whether it's 2015 or 16 or 17 or maybe 20, the onset of COVID. Something has changed where um, publishers, and I'm talking really about the mainstream publishers, but also many indies are um, have um, just really um, gotten into the grip of identity politics and have become uh, really under the spell of this identity essentialism, where uh, authors have to um, fulfill certain identity criteria to be even eligible or considered to have the, the uh, legitimacy or authority to talk about certain subjects. And uh, um, there is a kind of a checklist nowadays that often authors, uh, at least in their minds, probably they run through where they ask themselves, well, am I the right identity to talk about uh, certain topics? Am I the right identity to have certain characters? And and so so the limit is, the limitations just go on and on. It's it's like before you even imagine you want to write the great American novel, but you first have a checklist of things you are not allowed to do, words you're not supposed to use, you know, characters or perspectives you're not supposed to have, um, ideas you're you're not supposed to express, and what can be the outcome of that. So so generally there has been a swing in that direction, unfortunately, of enforced identity essentialism. And then add to that the sensitivity readers, um, the idea that texts must not, uh, stories and literary texts must not offend anybody or have the potential to offend anybody. And uh, yeah, so basically you end up with, with a, a watered down form of literature if you follow all those, um, those restrictive uh, limitations um, and censorious tendencies or, you know, what one could call to be a, 
a, a kind of a soft censorship. It's not an outright censorship, but a soft censorship. And we are we're saying, okay, let's reset. Let let's hit the reset button here, and and let's not get into that. Literature is not about this. Literature is not you know, uh, should not be constrained in these ways. It should be a space of freedom, first and foremost, the freedom to imagine anything, um, the freedom of creativity. Now, if you don't mind, um, one of the things that really caught my eye was when I was reading the about section of Heresy Press, um, if you don't mind, I would like to read sort of the mission statement in full, because I think when you hear it segmented out, it loses something. So with your permission, I'd like to just read it. Sure. Okay. And this sounds like a this sounds like a commercial, but it kind of is because a lot of the things you're going to state here are things that I think a lot of us who are in who are ourselves an independent press, and I consider Popsar independent simply because yep. we are independent. We are not affiliated with anyone by definition. Here is the mission statement of Heresy Press. It goes, quote, Heresy Press is committed to freedom, honesty, openness, dissent, and real diversity in all of its manifestations. The press promotes the, quote, radical middle that lies between the narrow ideological non-aesthetic interests presently flourishing on both the left and the right. We discourage authors from descending into self-censorship. We don't blink at alleged acts of cultural appropriation, and we won't pander to the presumed sensitivities of hypothetical readers. Instead of playing it safe, Heresy Press is unafraid of controversy and criticism. Good luck. Its ultimate commitment to its enduring quality standards, i.e. literary merit, originality, relevance, courage, humor, and aesthetic appeal. Every serious submission will receive a sympathetic hearing, regardless of the author's age, gender, identity, racial affiliation, political orientation, culture, religion, non-religion, or cancellation status. Dr. Bernard, I want to say, the reason I wanted to say that in full is that anyone who only listens to part of what we're talking about could take that to mean, well, everyone's left wing and they're liberal and they're this and that. So let's create a right wing. Let's do everything right wing and conservative. And that is not the case whatsoever, I must say. And I, I think you would agree with that, right? Yes, that's why we mentioned the, uh, you know, the kind of radical aspect of being in the center, of not being mm-hmm. beholden to any of the political ends of the spectrum or political ideologies per se we are we really just concern ourselves with literature and that's what presses and publishers should do um you concern yourself with literature and the other aspects i've been talking about um you know uh, identity of course and certain um, topics and and uh, trends and and all those are really non-aesthetic concerns and they should you know, they should play a secondary role. And certainly they have been promoted to become really a a primary factor in how publishers now choose uh, manuscripts and what they publish and what they don't want published. And so, yes, we we just um, reject um, this kind of alignment. We reject any political alignment and just we are concerned about the aesthetic qualities and and what literature is really about, which is the freedom to imagine. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that the real impetus for us speaking today is that Heresy Press is about to celebrate its first publication, I believe, next month in January, correct? Yes, that's correct. And that coincides roughly with the first year, the first anniversary of, of the existence of Heresy Press. We were founded in January 2023, so this year, and um, we opened our submissions for those looking for an outlet uh, like Heresy Press, a non-aligned press that is interested, that doesn't consider, you know, literature to be a tool of, of uh, social change, but says literature is 
a form of art. And that's what we're concerned with. And um, so we were inundated with uh, submissions after making that announcement, which already shows you there was a pent up demand. Uh, we received so many admissions, many of them of really um, stellar quality. I mean, we have uh, American Book Award winners. Uh, we have multiple Emmy winners. We have a Pulitzer Prize winner among our submitters. And and so it's often, it's almost like a feeding frenzy. <laughs> in, well, in, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if this, was an, if this was a video podcast, if we were on um, a late night TV show, this is the part where I would hold up a copy of the book so everyone could see the title and they could see the, the great artwork and say, this is the book. This is called Nothing Sacred, Outspoken Voices in Contemporary Fiction. But this being a podcast with no video, you're going to have to just suffice that the cover is very attractive and the book is very attractive, even in digital form. Yes. So so the, the title, Nothing Sacred, um, that's our first book. Mm -hmm. And um, the subtitle runs Outspoken Voices in Contemporary Fiction. That is an anthology of 12 short stories. And they ran the gamut. So um, not only in terms of topics and styles, but we have male authors, we have female authors, we have white authors, we have non-white authors. So it's it's a really, truly a representation of the diversity that we are aiming for, which is an, a diversity not arrived at by excluding certain categories, but by open the doors to everybody. And so it's really exciting. And we have had some excellent uh, feedback so far. And, uh, you know, the stories were extremely carefully selected and, and edited. And um, Joyce Carol Oates was uh, gracious enough to uh, favor us with a wonderful blurb, which is printed on the front cover. And Juno Diaz uh, has mm -hmm. uh, also a glowing endorsement for us on the back cover of Nothing Sacred. So really, the book comes highly, highly recommended. And we have other recommenders as well, uh, whose voices are printed in um, in the front matter of the book. So yes, it's um, it's an exciting work of fiction where, or you know, a compilation of shorter pieces of fiction, where except for maybe two or three, which were more or less explicitly uh, written for Heresy Press, mm -hmm. all the other pieces were um, rejected. Uh, serially by other presses and turned down or, you know, magazines as the case may be. And so this represents really what's what's left out, what what was sidelined until uh, Heresy Press came along. I, I do have to appreciate the, uh, the lack of uh, exploitation in the marketing where there's not a big sticker on the book that says too hot for everyone else. These oh. re read what everyone else didn't want you to read or some sort of exploitive thing. Um, no, these, I've, as someone who's read, I've actually read the stories twice and I do have some thoughts on that, but I, I want to go back to one of the, the writers that you actually mentioned as promoting the book, which is Juno Diaz, who is an excellent writer who of course won the Pulitzer Prize years ago yeah. for his um, wonderful book, The Brief Wondrous Life, Oscar Wow. Um, as, as we know, and this is very important, I do want to. I don't want to focus too much on this, but I do want to bring this up. Uh, Juno was one of those writers that was sort of, sort of cast out briefly because of allegations of bad behavior, and to see him prominently listed on there was itself sort of an act of bravery that I was not expecting. And I, I just want to clarify that that I think that if someone is so, you know quote unquote canceled from an industry. That doesn't mean that their career's over. That doesn't mean that. And I just want to say that I, I found that very interesting that he's so prominent. And I just want to applaud you because I do think that he has sort of been let back into the fold in many respects. And um, was that ever a, a decision to sort of choose who would promote this? Or was it just, we like him, he's a good writer? 
Uh, yes, of course. That's that's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, with those promotional blurbs, a lot of it is luck, and uh, the other part of it is connections. You need to know uh, writers, and and so in our network at Heresy Press, we were fortunate enough to have some connections, and and we could, you know, rather than come out of the blue and with with a imp, sort of a you know an impersonal uh, letter or 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 just uh, out of the blue, we had a direct line to Juno Diaz and uh, you know that really helped and we were extremely proud of course to have uh, a writer of, of his accomplishment to uh, to support our project and I applaud him uh, for for his work and he has been uh, sidelined probably or you know there were attempts to cancel him he has been uh, quiet for a while but hopefully will come back uh, roaring and he has already published another uh, story um, this year and uh, is hopefully coming back, uh, you know, in full force, being being the wonderful writer that that he can be. Now, I, I mentioned I don't want to dwell too much on that particular subject, but I do think it's instructive to to let anyone know that who may not be aware of this is that there was a period a few years back during the the first part of the Me Too movement, which of course was in some some, including myself, feel was a necessary corrective to what many felt was sort of the sidelining of women's um, grievances in regards to sexual harassment in certain industries, of course, film, mm-hmm. books, video games, you name it. And But like as with all movements, sometimes there could be a movement too far. And, and I don't want to get into the specifics of this, but it did cross over into the world of publishing, specifically in the world of banned books, and which we can talk about a little bit. When it comes to when it comes to sort of choosing the writers that you think heresy will promote, it's one thing to say that these are writers that could have been marginalized because of their race or their gender or their their controversial opinions about something. But would you ever foresee a time when heresy would take on a writer that had been sidelined because of allegations of abuse that were unfounded? Specifically, I do have an example of this. One of the books that was at, sort of banned during this kerfuffle was Woody Allen's Apropos of Nothing. And I don't, I use the word banned, I, I don't know if, I don't know if the word banned is correct. Um, we, we throw out the word banned book, but nothing's really banned, but sort of de-promoted or de-platformed. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what, what was your, what would be your view on that sort of um, situation? Well, um, so Woody Allen's um, memoir was published and um, I believe became a bestseller. It was published by Skyhorse, right? Mm-hmm. One of the independent publishers um, specializing in, almost specializing in, in publishing books that uh, were suppressed or, or by writers who were canceled. Um, we would definitely consider anything. You know, we're not right now in the business of uh, considering nonfiction titles. So our specialty is uh, long fiction novels and short fiction, short stories, mm-hmm. but that may change. And we're essentially open to any high quality uh, piece of writing that um, has a deserving subject and, and is well executed. And if that is from somebody who is controversial or provocative or even has been canceled, that's why it says in our uh, mission statement, regardless of cancellation status, yes, mm-hmm. we would absolutely publish somebody who has been canceled. Absolutely. If the work is good, mm-hmm. that's what we care about. Okay. And, and, and I just, and I did, and I did want to clarify um, in case I was inelegant, is that when we're, when we're speaking of cancellation, it's not necessarily because of the actions of someone who did, but of, of, a, of a particular writer. It could be 
let's just say the perceived actions or their right. or their their opinions are not longer in vogue. Let's just say that. Um, not exactly. necessarily. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So so Heresy Press, you know, doesn't. Um, put its flag in the wind, so to speak, to just only do what is on vogue. In fact, uh, we're, if anything, we are retreating from what's on vogue and offering an alternative, um, and and you know go for for works that um, maybe maybe a little discomforting or mm-hmm. you know uh, something that isn't just uh, mainstream and and uh, represents the status quo. Or you know the the current most popular taste. So really, um, we also want to be a bit at the uh, vanguard and publish things that are really edgy and forward thinking, and uh, yeah, unusual. I do um, I do want to bring up just one of the necessities of publishing um, before we get off into the actual sort of meat and the potatoes of the actual book, is that I think you would agree that the world of publishing, uh, although while wild and dynamic, the the mainstream publishing world is pretty much controlled by five major publishers, give or take. And yeah. un- under those five publishers, they control many, 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 many imprints, and their their tentacles run far and wide. Uh, some people have likened it to a literal leviathan in the fact that you it's very difficult to break in there, especially given some of the parameters mm-hmm. that you outlined regarding, you know, do you meet these criteria? And I hate using the word checkboxes, but I think you would agree that's probably appropriate. Do you meet the, the criteria of what of what type of writer or what type of content we're trying to publish. So, uh, Dr. Bernard, that being said, um, while I appreciate and while I can applaud the initiative to sort of be independent, I, I strive to be that way myself. You're, you know, we do come across the, the reality that there is a publishing machine and promotion machine that is designed to promote these writers. Um, if you, for example, I think you would agree, um, especially on social media platforms like Twitter or, excuse me, X, uh, Instagram, uh, whatever, that there are sort of segmented things. We have black Twitter, we have book Twitter, we have book talk, we have all this. And if you were to dive into them, you know, good luck, that they, you'd find that they are very, very much segmented according to certain parameters. And so my question to you is, let's just say we're going to promote, um, the intention is to promote nothing sacred. Uh, what type of what type of sort of uh, resources would you would you look for to try to promote something that doesn't necessarily fit ni- nicely into one of those boxes, or or hear me out, or may actually counteract one of those boxes? For example, if you have a white writer, an older white writer writing about Hispanic people, which I don't think there is in this particular collection, but if you do, what would you that 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 you, you run the risk of offending someone who thinks, well, that doesn't line up appropriately, or or you might go against a feminist imprint, or you might go against a person of color imprint, or an LGBT imprint. So, and going back to my question, um, how would you, how are you thinking about promoting uh, both this work and future works? Yes, of course, we stand at the beginning of our journey. So mm-hmm. we're promoting our first book, um, Nothing Sacred, which officially will be released on January 15, but is already available for purchase on our website. Mm-hmm. And uh, then afterwards, we have um, four more novels in the pipeline, and they will be published pretty much in one month's steps from um, March the 1st through through June the 1st. And, and so, you know, we are reaching out to a growing readership and and that includes 
people in the space of writing. Um, we are getting fairly well known, I would say at this point, in, in writer circles. So writers, especially writers who um, are independent thinking, who, who are, uh, you know, not interested in playing the games of the big five or even the, the lesser, um, but still aligned publishers. So we are quite well known and, and that um, reputation is growing um, among writers and um, people interested in publishing and what's happening, especially also people in the free speech and free expression uh, space. So there is a growing base of <clears throat> supporters and and an uh, you know an audience that we have, which we um, approach and communicate with uh, through uh, our newsletter that we are issuing every quarter and the next newsletter is coming out uh, on 16th of uh, December and we have a mailing list of course so that reaches all the people and they will find out when which book is uh, available for sale and hopefully uh, word of mouth and you know it's hard to beat word of mouth as the marketing mm -hmm. strategy yes. but it's grassroots it's, it, it is grassroots so that will go uh, from there and then we we are quite active on social media we, we we post almost every day something that's related to the press or and that's different so all other presses that i know of who are on facebook instagram twitter and so on they just post about their own products and their own press but we in addition we post um content that is related to the larger uh, situation in publishing and and literature and the arts in general so so our our posts are, are just more more widely spread and diverse. And so that also, of course, is a form of promotion. And book reviews will be very important. And so we are, you know, still ahead of the first official release. And that means the, the bigger book reviews with the major outlets haven't uh, appeared yet. But we have some smaller reviews that are already out and are very encouraging. So, so this movement, I think, of free and independent and ideologically non-aligned and non-identity-based and non-sensitivity reader-based uh, publishing can only grow. And um, yes, of course, we do not have the marketing muscle of uh, the, the big publishers or the you know, um, publicity budget, but I think heart a lot of heart and hard work and and uh, just passion uh, for this, both on the part of our writers and contributors, but also on the part of the small team at the press will make a huge difference. I want to I want to go back into that for a second, because, um, again, I didn't want to I, I didn't want to give the audience the implication that that because you're not affiliate uh, heresy press isn't affiliated with a major publisher, therefore you know, success will be defined differently. I think, I think success for any small publisher or any independent publishers is not necessarily defined by can we sell 10 million books or 20 million, but merely by existing and continuing sort of your mission. And the reason I bring that up is because mm -hmm. um, I mentioned all these, I don't want to use the word segregated, but it's almost appropriate to say that, but I, I want to say segmented audiences on Twitter and social media. Um, but if you were to go into there, and this is a very important distinction I want to make, that if you were to go into, like, for example, talk about YA books or, you know, I hate using the term YA, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. You talk about YA books or black Twitter or, or, or queer Twitter or whatever. 
There's very little discussion of actual literature. Most of the discussion seems to be about promoting each other, about promoting other books. Like, and I think, and I wonder if you've, if um, if this was ever a concern of Heresy Press in, in general, because it seems that with all the marketing and all everything I've read about the submissions and some of the authors, the focus seems to be sort. I know, call it crazy, on the actual work, on the actual you know, literal merit of the work being published and not necessarily the identity of the people. And because it, and because it's not uh, centered on the identity of the writer, then it, it doesn't feel like we're being pushed to feel about a certain way. And um, the reason I, I bring that up is because I'm sure you're, you know, you're familiar with the term of prosumer, that the idea is that, we're, you know, we're going to create art only for other artists to consume and therefore we consume their art. But if you look at if you look at the the world we live in and sort of the, the way the industry is in the world of book publishing, we don't really live in a world where we have the celebrity writer the way we used to. We have we have writers who are celebrities, but you know the idea that we have uh, we have the creation of an author who who envelops our attention, whatever. But now it seems to be identity seems to trump everything else. How much of this is a concern? And this is a important question. How would you gauge the success of Heresy Press in relation to what your stated goals are? I mean, I, I assume you want to sell as many books as possible, of course. Right. <laughs> so, but like, how would you? So, what would you deem a success at this point? Uh, a success would be to be economically viable after a year or two years. Um, so the press is entirely privately funded, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, at some and it's it's a for profit business so we are we're not a charity so to speak or a, you know a not-for-profit we, we really do we are a traditional publisher in other words we pay royalties mm-hmm. uh we you know we distribute and and sell print books as well as um ebooks and so at some point we need to be economically viable and that means we have to sell enough books to uh, go beyond the break-even point, and uh, and that's in itself for a new publisher that is a significant challenge. Um, you know, eighty percent of all books sold in the United States sell less than five thousand copies, and fifty percent. Uh, I'm not exactly sure about that number, but a, a large proportion sells sells even less uh, than a thousand copies. So, to to make it into that space above five thousand, into that top twenty. Uh, slot, if you will, of all books sold. And then, of course, there are the big five that probably gobble up the majority of that <laughs> um, 20% slot. So then there there remains uh, not too much uh, for, for other presses and to share out. But that's where Heresy Press is different because we are so unique. I frankly don't know a single other publisher that comes out and does exactly what uh, Pen America says that presses should do which is to state that they are supporting artistic freedom in all of its manifestations and that we are not engaging in soft censorship or consider withdrawing a book because uh, a few readers are offended. So it is surprising how few, if any, other presses in the fiction space. So we know there's uh, Post Hill, there's Skyhorse, there are a few presses that uh, Cato um, Institute has a press, they cater more to nonfiction titles that um, would not really have a, a great chance in, in mainstream publishing. Um, but in the fiction space, I'm just not aware of any other press that does exactly what we do, and that's how we stand out. 
is with our principal stance in favor of free speech, free expression, and creative freedom. And that sets us apart tremendously. And yes, it's also a drawback because now we no longer appeal to certain segmented um, populations. That is true. But I think the benefits of our independence and, and our uh, principal stance on uh, creativity really outweigh the, those, those disadvantages. But that has to be seen. Like I said, we are roughly one year old and or young, I should say. And, um, you know, we've moved a couple of hundred copies of Nothing Sacred, but um, that's far, far, far from paying the bills. So, um, you know, uh, the sales so far have gone through our website exclusively and uh, the book is on pre-order on Amazon.com and then later on will be available in um, through Barnes & Noble as well. So so that all of that comes in in uh, in January and, and then uh, hopefully we'll have a big, you know, a few publicity events and, and readings as well as book reviews coming out. And then hopefully this will take off and uh, and the, the, the books that follow should then um, also be uh, riding that, that wave. But yes, a success is defined as being economically viable. So in other words, that we reach all those readers. And there are many, many readers who are tired of um, being told that literature should be a tool of social change or or, uh, or improvement, and that uh, you know these readers they want to have great stories, they want to have really edgy and independent, and and um, you know provocative literature. That's what literature often does. That's why authoritarian regimes, the first people landing in prisons, very often are the writers and the artists. And uh, so we should not restrict those free spirited. Um, creators with all kinds of limitations of our own making based on on identity and so so yeah i can only hope that this this message uh, will be trumpeted far and wide and you know with the help of, of your uh, podcast hopefully <laughs> that, that will contribute we, to... we will make the difference yeah. we will we will we will turn the tide uh, i will say though that you have a fabulous quote on the heresy press website i just want to read uh you you quote uh, german literary critic uh, dennis Scheck. It says quote the point of literature is not to confirm or reinforce our identity. Literature gives us the freedom to leave our identity. And I remember that that, that echoes a, another quote from Gore Vidal, where he had this famous talk about how art itself is sort of giving, giving a window to our own prisons that we can see outside. And But when we look at the world of publishing, when we look at sort of the promotion of publishing, it seems the opposite. It almost seems very incestuous, where we, we are going to create literature for specific audiences we are going to create you know black uh, written content for black audiences only and asian written content and of course white for white only although i don't really think you have that anyone promoting white for white only anymore but when it comes to any 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 generality it, it seems like the the real impetus is that and what's so interesting is that that's just, but that's not the message that i think the publishing industry is promoting itself it's promoting diversity it's promoting um diversity of you know not just the creator but diversity of thought but it doesn't seem to be practicing it and i do want to go back real quick for one of the reasons that it, that drew me to you was an article that was published you probably saw it in the free press last week about um from writer alex perez yeah and you know Thankfully, I just want to say that's how I discovered Heresy Press myself. But okay, right. um, 
but no, but he, but Alex uh, states some some facts that are not unknown to people who work in the industry. Whereas, um, if you've and I from personal experience, um, whenever I travel quite a bit, Doctor Bernard, and every city I go to, I make an effort to go to books every local bookstore I can. It's sort of my thing. And you can go into any local bookstore in this country. Um, it doesn't matter what section you're in, and you almost have the feeling that you are being set up for something because you 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 see this segmentation. You see that. They all have a banned book section. They all have a diversity section. They have this, and my 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 thinking was, who is reading all this stuff? Because they're publishing it, they're creating it, but I'm wondering who's actually reading it because I don't see, I don't see a reflection of the amount of this content that's being produced have any real effect on the culture except for the people that are creating it. And mm. and if you look at the metrics of what's being sold, if you actually look at book sales versus the intentionality of what's being created. It does seem to be at odds with each other, and I, I'm, I'm wondering how much of that went into a factor of when you created Heresy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I was frustrated with uh, the kind of uniformity and monoculture in uh, publishing, despite the calls, the constant calls for uh, for diversity. Um, I think if you are identity obsessed and an identity okay. essentialist you tend to narrow diversity and have a negative effect on it rather than a positive. So for instance, a good example of this uh, would be if you go, um, if, if you look at the, uh, the report uh, from PEN America, Booklash, mm-hmm. uh, was released uh, recently, they talk about the identity trap in there where they say, um, okay, so certain authors because of their identity background are not supposed to write about certain subjects. So there's an exclusion of that. But those, now now there's another side to that, another edge to that sort, namely those who are the right uh, kind of identity to write about certain subjects. Now they are only expected to write about the subject. So it is a form of an exclusionary trap, but also an inclusionary trap that now the people um, of certain uh, identities. Now they are expected to and almost compelled to write about those subjects that are um, you know, inherently of concern to their identity. They also cannot um, look outside that uh, prison house, that silo, as uh, Pan America uh, report calls that silo of identity. So, so it, it really creates silos um, and, and people tend to immure themselves within those silos, reading each other's works if they're in the same silo and not looking across the aisle into um, other, you know, um, other realms and, and other forms of imagining the world. Mm-hmm. And so so one of so so that's one aspect is the it's the siloing of, of identities. Um, the other aspect is um, a certain uniformity and maybe that's of, of the offer, let's say you go to a, a Barnes and Noble store in in in, in suburbia, and you approach um, you approach the bestseller, the fiction bestseller um, shelf. That um, as I did a short while ago, and you see that it's overwhelmingly similar stuff mm-hmm. that's that's on offer. So, for instance, I uh, so the best selling display displayed um, had twenty two novels on it, and twenty of them were by women. Um, so men are essentially 
sidelined as producers of, of worthwhile uh, fiction. And um, the few that are still in the mix are fairly well-known writers. But um, where are, you know, where, where is a new uh, debut novelist male who happens to be white where is he going with with his new and where are the the male readers going to to find uh, stories that really appeal to them they can't go to that barnes and noble um, because they will stand in front of that and say okay um i appreciate this representation i'm glad personally i'm glad that women have mm -hmm. finally broken through um that glass ceiling and you know from before where um, George Eliot, uh, you know, and Virginia Woolf, and and so on, were the were the few pioneers who who broke into this business. But now um, we have a majority of um, literary gatekeepers who are who are female, and they're promoting female works to the point where uh, the pendulum swings in entirely in the other direction, and we begin to have again a lack of diversity. So I I, I totally applaud women to go up to 50% or more of um, published fiction works, but we don't need 95%. <laughs> well, so it can be too much of a good thing. And so, so that also is a, a lack of diversity then, if you will. I do want to bring up a question real quick. Um, I don't, again, I don't want to get too much into the mucky muck of, of the business objectives of it. But uh, one, of the, the, one of the examples that was cited in the new press, uh, in the new press feature was from the author. Uh, let me, I just want to make sure I get her name correctly here. I'm sorry, uh, G.N. Cummins, uh, who had a book that came out a few years back called American Dirt, where it was about uh, you know Mexican Americans, and you know there were there were critics saying that there was a mix match of cultural and creator sponsorship, and of course the book the book wasn't censored by any means, but it was controversial, um, not because of the content, but again because of the creator's ethnicity, and but a few years back here at Popzara, um, we covered a very similar book that didn't get one-tenth of the, um, the controversy. had a very similar name, too. It was a book called American Heart. It was written by a university uh, English professor named Laura Moriarty, who, again, again is a white lady, and who wrote a book. It was a uh, YA fiction novel where she had Hispanic characters. And it caused a minor controversy in the book world. And this is instructive because I do think it it sort of um, talks about what we're talking about. And when the book came out, uh, the criticism, because of the author's ethnicity, um, you've heard of Kirkus, of course, they do starred reviews. Yep. And for those who don't know, Kirkus starred reviews are very instrumental in librarians helping choose what books go into libraries. And so mm -hmm. uh, they changed their policy over this book. They gave it a star review, and after, after the controversy came out, even though they had already reviewed it, they went back and re-edited and re it and changed it simply because they bowed to the pressure. And it had nothing to do with the content of the book. It had everything to do with identity politics, 100%. And we spoke to her. We spoke to um, we spoke mm -hmm. to Laura Moriarty, and she was kerfuffled about it. She was very confused. She said, I didn't do anything wrong. I wrote a book, and because her ethnicity did not match the characters, she felt that she was punished for it, and she was. And, and I bring this up is because when... When you mention going to Barnes and Noble and you see that all these writers are predominantly female, you know one could easily say, well, they earned it. They they wrote the book. They if if white male writers want to be on that list, then they should write books too. But that's not the case. What what's happening behind the scenes is that there is a conscious effort 
to minimize certain books that are coming out from certain types of writers who don't meet the criteria to be promoted. And there is so many factors that go into marketing a book, whether it's Kirkus Reviews, whether it's Goodreads, whether it's magazine editors, whether it's whatever, that like I, it's the, the game you're playing, Dr. Bernard, is that you have to, like, I can't imagine what it would take to sort of play this game in a way that's favorable. And what's so refreshing about Heresy Press is that you don't seem really much interested in playing that game. The focus, again, is on the work. That's yeah. right. I think I think once you get into this game, yeah. you have already lost. Yeah. You've already lost. It's I just stay above the fray. That really, I'm absolutely not interested in getting into this. If somebody wants to transgress outside of their own identity group and and write about another one, mm-hmm. hey, it can be it can be done well. It can be done poorly. Writing about your own identity group can be done poorly or can can be done well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also say that. Um, this idea that we know ourselves best and that we should only write about ourselves or our own group is totally mistaken because um, we don't know ourselves quite as well as we think we do or our group. And it often takes an outsider Mm -hmm. to actually tell us truly who we are. I still remember reading a book about Switzerland by, um, I'm Swiss originally, by an American scholar. And um, I read it from cover to cover, you know, which is essentially a cultural history and as well as political history. And I said, I've never understood Switzerland better than after what this American scholar wrote, because he comes from an outside perspective. He sees certain things that I'm so accustomed, so habituated to that I no longer notice it. And that's the same about ourselves. Right? This navel gazing, inward looking only concerning ourselves with our identity. It just shuts off so many possibilities and actually clouds our own, I think, perception and, and over our own understanding of ourselves and the world. So, so openness is the, is the key, not, um, not narrowing and limitation. When, uh, when, I was, when I was in school, one of the foundational texts that we were asked to read, we, by the way, when I went to school, very, very, very different than now, um, was, of course, Alexander Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which is, yeah. again, a foundational text written by a very young Frenchman who came to explore America. And... I think most Americans who are interested would would agree that it is a substantial work that is profoundly educational to both Americans and Europeans, because like you said, sometimes it takes an outsider to show us who we really are. And I and one ex, one big example that I that I thought about after that was um, the idea of freedom to publish who you want. And again, before this before this sort of identity politics took over, um, you know you you can have someone like Irish Greek born author Lafcadio O'Hearn who is free to write about Japanese mythology and yokai every bit as Japanese born author Kazuo Ishiguro is free to write about English provincialism you know mm-hmm. like like no one would say Kazuo you can't write about you can't write about English aristocracy because you were born in the wrong country you know no one's going to say that to him but i think now they might and yeah it also depends so so this <clears throat> This is a trend, and like I said at the beginning, it's it's a trend that started very recently. That um, that identity has become this absolutely critical and crucial factor, uh, rather than you know the more literary inherent uh, aspects of of creative writing. Um, so so it's a trend that's also really the, the the leader of that trend is America. The USA is the trendsetter of 
of this um, sense of correctness and enforcing the correctness through soft censorship methods. It's a little different in Europe, and um, the quote you used earlier from Dennis Scheck was actually a translation from me. I was yes. at the Frankfurt Book Fair. I was going to ask where, you where you got that quote from. Yes, so. it's, it's it's nowhere available because he didn't he didn't write it. He said it. I was at mm -hmm. his his panel at the Frankfurt Book Fair, and he said this, and it just electrified me. I broke into so I'm in Germany, and I break into a yeah. <laughs> and started clapping. I didn't say bravo, as I probably should have, right? But yeah. I, I said, yeah. And people kind of looked at me a little bit. So I did raise a round of applause, but kind of reluctant because people thought, so what, right? And and other conversations I had and, and other panels I attended at the Frankfurt Book Fair um, two months ago really confirmed me that things are going a little bit in that direction of identity politics in Germany or Europe, more generally speaking, but they're not quite there. They're not quite there yet. So, um, you know, since this is a trend, uh, movement, development, there's also a possibility that it that the wave will crest at a certain mm -hmm. point uh, that there will be a return to more sanity uh, and common sense at, at, and, and the reorientation to what's really important. Uh, when we talk about literature, I was, and, yeah. I would say that uh, for me as a reader, as as someone who is the only the only involvement I have in any of this as an editor of a website, you know, I have a responsibility to my to my editors who you know trust me to present them as accurate as possible, and I have stories I could tell, but the but as a reader, as a as a as a, someone who just loves to sit down with a coffee and read a book, I find the whole endeavor frankly like mentally exhausting because. You know, I've been told since birth diversity is good, and I believe it. I absolutely believe it. I believe in evolution. I believe that diversity enriches. But what they're practicing in reality is not diversity. It's it it is more of segregation, and I I hate using the term, but it's if you're creating content that is uh, content created specifically for an audience, created by the audience, intended only for the audience and any sort of um, encroachment on that audience is considered verboten, then that feels like segregation to me. And, you know, yes. you, you mentioned yes. America, like we have a history of this, um, you know, very recent history of, up until the 1960s of segregation that is blatant. And it, it, it's, it's very depressing to see that many of the same people that would sort of advocate against that are now sort of the sort of willing participants in reinstituting some of those mm -hmm. policies. Mm -hmm. And I feel yeah. uncomfortable saying that. I don't like saying that, but I, but I, it has to be said, you know. Yeah, the the idea of diversity is, should be a blend, mm -hmm. uh, and should not be erecting more and more silos. And I think that's what what's unfortunately what what the identity movement, uh, the identity essentialist movement is is driving toward, is erecting more and more separate silos. And and so, where we should foster common commonality, common understanding, tolerance, openness, exchange, blending, all of those things. And and so when I recently, one of the reasons uh, also why I did decide to found this press is I just was dissatisfied 
when I picked up books, when I went to Barnes and Noble and started browsing, or when I order a book that caught my interest and I ordered through Amazon and I started reading, very often I just felt there's something thin about it and sometimes mm-hmm. also quite preachy. And, yes. and so I said, where is, where is the literature that I can get fully behind, that I can immerse myself in another world and have no concerns about um, matters of, of, of correctness or, or of, of a political stance or partisan viewpoints, where I just want to be um, immersed in a wonderful, magical story and written in a way that is absolutely compelling that is masterful so much of what you find today which is hyped and praised highly is just average absolutely average <laughs> average writing and and poorly edited there are highly touted books and i i just don't want to n- name any titles no no you're all. fine i am um... so i don't admouse any but there are and you know in private i can say this there are books that i open and i just say look i would edit this significantly <laughs> Because it has, um, you know, stylistic bloopers and gaffes and even just straightforward errors in it. And so at Heresy Press, we set a really, really high quality standard. The editing is is really first rate, I believe. And, and you know, um, I say this proudly, we are putting an enormous effort into editing um, and, and, and also in just emphasizing a writing that is stylistically rich and 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 original and and truly genuinely artistic writing not just information conveying writing but genuinely artistic writing um and that's that's not easy to come by but because we are um, a niche business offering opportunities for many authors who have been denied the opportunity of publication we do have a uh, you know a big pile of, of manuscripts pending mm-hmm. uh, that need to be read and evaluated and um, every once in a while maybe every tenth manuscript or so is a gem and I'm just grateful to be able to uh, pursue the publication of, of those wonderful books which otherwise would would have uh, probably never seen the light of publication. I do. Um, I do want to make a, a small defense, real quick, and I, you're going to laugh when I say this. I do want to make a small defense of crappy writing, um, <laughs> because uh, I, I, will, I will say this as someone who is who is inundated daily with requests for reviewing products and everything. And I understand that it's difficult to to write a masterpiece, or it's difficult to to you know to create anything that's masterful, and and. And I want to be clear, like from my perspective, you know, everyone has different opinions about what constitutes good. What you're speaking of, I understand wholly what you're talking about, where you, you go in there and you feel almost depressed that something so poorly written and poorly edited could ever make it. It's one thing to say, you know, you have these mechanisms like Oprah Book Club, Reese Book Club, Pulitzer Prize winning, and you see books that are clearly inferior, you know, sort of achieve that status. But if you were to go to the other section of the bookstore, you, you know, the romance section or the detective, the detective or the science fiction, it's filled with marvelously garbage books that were never written to win any prizes. But people enjoy them. You know, they right. they enjoy consuming them and they're fun. Uh, they are written what they are. But it, it it is depressing when you you do see otherwise subpar subpar work being touted as something that yeah. is clearly not. 
Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> so. of course, I'm, I'm talking about literary fiction yeah. as kind of a genre we are mainly in, in the business of, um, of acquiring and, um, and publishing and promoting. So, yes, yes, you know, def- absolutely. Um, you know, the, there's, there's a reason for, there's a space and a place for popular fiction um, and, and, you know, for, for um, entertaining works, uh, page turners, that may be not rise to the highest uh, level of uh, stylistic <laughs> guilty, artistry. Guilty pleasures, yes, so to speak. For that. <laughs> I um, I um, but, yeah. I do want to, I do want to like segue into something really important here, which is that you're not alone. And what's interesting is that this year in 2023, there have been some very well publicized examples from inside the publishing industry of people speaking out against what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if those are sort of programmed to become controversial. And if we can just state this real quick, uh, there are companies that do sort of um, monetize controversy because it's free publicity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this happens too. Um, You know, just today there was a news story that broke out about um, a writer that was creating fake accounts on Goodreads to de to deplatform other upcoming books, and you see stuff like this all the time. You see people who take advantage of the system. But um, there were two 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 works this year. I don't know if you've um, if you've if you followed either one, but there was one book that came out earlier this year by the Chinese American writer R. F. Kuang called Yellowface, um, which was touted as sort of exuberant. That you know it was a, a book that you know. Uh, pull the curtain on the on what you're talking about on this identity mm-hmm. politics and the book's okay I, I've read it um, it's not as good as people are making it out to be but it's it's a good book um, I'm just fascinated that it came out at all I I, I imagine that sort of the the author Kwong sort of had them over in a barrel where they had to publish whatever she wanted and I'm surprised it was this book that they published but um, there's also yeah. There's a there's a film coming out next actually next week um, American called Fiction. American Fiction. Um, I remember because I've I've actually read the book. Uh, God, it's 22 years ago by Percival Everett called uh, Erasure. And of course, the the you know the, the story behind that is that you have an African American writer who is not interested in writing African American work. Mm-hmm. He wants to write. He mm-hmm. just wants to write, you know, nonfiction about the Greeks. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a perfect. It's a perfect. Yeah movie for our times exactly that, that's, that's a movie about the identity trap that pan america is talking about yes and it's exactly. um it's it's fascinating because uh if you've you've read the, have you read the book no no i've 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 talked with people who've already seen the movie and oh. i've read reviews of it but so i know it's going to be perfect i can't wait to, to see. <laughs> it looks good it's, it's um, perfect. jeffrey wright looks what fantastic but in the um, in the book version it's it's not so much a comedy it's more of a tragedy where it's about the um, the pressure that this author feels to write more black, to be more mm-hmm. black. And it reminded me of, a couple of years ago about the comedian Steve Harvey, um, who wrote a book called, goodness gracious, what was it called? I think it was called Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And he was very vocal that his publishers and editors wanted him to, in his words, quote, black it up, to start putting Ebonics in there to appeal to a black audience. And he resisted. And he said, no. He says, People are the same. They're universal. Why would I do this? Why would I limit my audience? And you you don't really hear authors speaking out as much as maybe you should. You know, it's one thing to censor by saying, we're not going to publish, go away. It's another thing to say, well, if you don't do what we say, then we're not going to publish. And it, mm-hmm. I can't imagine mm-hmm. what it's like to, to hold that power over a writer, you know, 
in these day and yes, age. Yes, ex- yeah, this um, right. This is almost a compelled speech, and mm-hmm. uh, there are instances also reported in the Pan American Report booklash where um, authors, because of their own voices um, doctrine, they were forced to reveal their identity, which could be the identity of a trans person or a gay person or a lesbian person. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were forced into revealing that um, because otherwise they would not have they would not have been considered an own voices author because their subject matter was about trans or gay or, or lesbian or, or whatever other experience that is, um, you know, expressive of, of certain identities was. And so they were actually you could say harmed in a way because they had they were forced to come out when they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of, of compulsion also that comes with it. And yes, the identity trap is is real. And um and and it's dramatized um memorably in that movie American fiction. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it should be eye opening um that this is you know, we have to we have to remind ourselves that the the value of freedom the value of, of choosing your field in which to uh, engage creatively. That is just so important. Um, the other book yeah, um, that you mentioned um, came out of England. I think she, she did the writer um, who um, published this book about the publishing industry and the pressures um, inherent in it. Was um, that a yellow face by yeah yellow yes. face yellow face yes. that's that one um, that um, the writer lives and works in in England I believe in London and it, so so that's where it was originally written if I'm not mistaken and then yes <clears throat> made it across the Atlantic and was actually published here to to my surprise I must say yes <laughs> yes I was surprised <laughs> but. Uh... But again, I don't. I I always question. I, I question when things are able to get through sort of that gauntlet where they're able to to self to self uh, criticize their own industries, and it, sometimes it feels like like an attempt to sort of um, deflect controversy away to say, "See, we're not like that. We we publish this. This is this is our token." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, yeah, but yeah, the the thing I heard about, and of course this is all purely hearsay mm-hmm. about. Um, publishing executives um, in, in the big publishing houses, they are sick and tired of this game that they are forced to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't change, really. And so uh, when you read the, the Pan America report, um, they are all quoted on under condition that their names are not revealed, of course. But they're tired of this. They would rather, you know, focus on on other aspects of literature but they are the current trend forced them into this um this obsession with uh with identity and and group belonging and so so that's a current trend and um maybe you know in the ideal case and best case scenario heresy press could contribute to tipping that uh, to reaching the tipping point a little bit earlier and maybe turning the tide of course um that you know now People who are looking for uh, f- for books and for stories that are not aligned with this particular um, outlook and ideology, uh, you know, they can come to us and they they find products uh, that are absolutely um, wonderfully um, imaginative and and inspiring. I will um, I will say if I can reveal a little bit what it's like to be on the other end of the of the publicity tours, where you know we 
with a website like Popsaro, you know, we cover yeah. a multitude of, of literature, of, of products from film and Hollywood and video games and technology, whatever. Um, it has gotten a little disparaging and a little, again, maybe a little um, exhausting when we have uh, PR firms from smaller publishers and bigger publishers. I won't say who they are, mm-hmm. but um, I get, I used to get it. We used to get emails. Hey, would you like to cover such and such book from this new hot author? And recently that's sort of degraded and now the emails become would you like some new lgbt content from these Mm. lgbt writers or this is new you know african-american literature presents and it's the identity first as it's almost Mm. like it's almost like i'm reading french like oh they're putting this before this and Mm. and um maybe it's my american you know ignorance that that doesn't see that but it's just well what's the name of the book you know well what's the author but no no no, it doesn't matter like it's just this content and it feels invasive in a way that makes me uncomfortable because i want to talk about the author i want to talk about the content of the book but i understand that the publisher are sort of indebted to promoting you know these identity groups and and i feel bad because i've spoken to many of these people i've spoken to many of these people who are from those groups who created the content they don't want to talk about it. They want to talk about the content, and they're they're sort of held captive in a way too. And and I hope that I hope that that message doesn't get lost is that the authors themselves don't necessarily like being pigeonholed in these holes. Absolutely not. Of course they don't. Um, they may feel obliged to play along, but uh, I don't think very willingly um, in general. Because the craft is what really matters, and and uh, all the rest is is secondary. And uh, I think we are, yeah, we're getting caught up in these secondary mm-hmm. or tertiary matters that are non-aesthetic, non-literary, non-artistic. Um, those that's just noise. And uh, so, yeah, if I mean, what you just described is actually worse than than what I thought this current situation was. That. Uh, we we seem to be digging in the publishing industry. Uh, the status quo seems to be we're digging in even further um, wow. with regard to to identity essentialism, and and that's that's just taking us further and further away from what art is really about. Will this you, is not what it is about. Well, you mentioned a return to sanity, and I, I just want to say again, I'm I'm looking at metrics. I'm not necessarily looking at intention of of writers or publishers. But if you're going to, if you want to create content that's for these specific, these specific things, it's a matter of arithmetic. If if you say to yourselves, we want to sell 30 million copies of this book that's about the African American experience, but the demographics aren't that large, then you simply cannot only have that demographic read that book and expect to be a hit. You have to cross those lines. You you have to quote, I know. I know, controversial. You have to be diverse in how you market it, and you have to you have to say that if a white woman from Idaho, Idaho wants to read this, or an Asian American from Hawaii wants to read this, that's okay, and it's okay for them to talk about it, and more importantly, it's okay for them to love it, because mm-hmm. you you shouldn't inculcate fear, and you shouldn't inculcate segregation yeah. on on both the writer and the audience, and say, well, right. you're not and the appropriate one. It's not fair. Yes, and. Um... Of course, some of that is adjudicated by um, these websites, especially Goodreads, uh, has an enormous and I would say a vastly outsized influence where you you can have this kind of mob mentality where uh, review bombing 
becomes the norm. If somebody uh, raises an objection against a book on Goodreads and um, thousands of people review bomb it without even bothering to read the book, you know, there we are back to what is the content? Have you actually read the book or are you just concerned with um, some kind of, uh, you know, offense being taken by somebody or, or uh, a speculative um, offense or, uh, you know, a violation of certain uh, identity mm-hmm. rules. Based on, on such uh, thin evidence, uh, people are willing to join in um, destructive campaigns. Of course. Uh, sometimes, you know, these these uh, campaigns are launched at books that haven't even been published yet. Oh. So, so, so that those are horror stories, and and that's that's just going in absolutely the wrong direction. That's why I do support also Pan America's call for, um, f- for uh, you know uh, a, a review and for revised uh, user um, rules for Goodreads um, account members that should you know that um should exclude uh, the 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 kind of uh, vindictive and and uh mob kind of uh dynamics of review bombing that you know you you should not be able to review a book um unless you have at least read a good portion of it (laughs) um, (laughs) that used to be the norm but uh it no it no longer is so so yeah there there are those online these these destructive social media and online uh, tendencies that are not having a good influence on uh where where literature is going these days for sure that reminds me of that um, the quote from H.L. Mencken you know, years ago because he – journalist who used to review books and somebody asked him, well, do you – you know, have you read this new book yet? And he's like, read it. I haven't even reviewed it yet. You know, and it's just – it's – and by the way, if, if anyone – anyone, anyone who has ever worked in editorial ship in any capacity understands that not every review that you've read – is is necessary reflective of the product that's being reviewed. In some cases, they may not have even read it. It happens. Um, but no. But, but Pops are no. Everything everything is reviewed. But um, I just want to say this uh, before we start uh, wrapping up. Um, you know, I mentioned um, I mentioned publishing seems to be a problem with arithmetic. Is that the idea mm-hmm. is that there's a zero sum amount mm-hmm. of of paper to go around? I get it. And so I I forget where I read it. I think it was some futurist futuristic uh dissertation but he said basically the business of publishing books in the 21st century is that it's stuck in a 19th century model the idea that there's only so much space to go around you mentioned barnes and noble i mentioned independent booksellers that's true that's a finite space you can only put so many books on the thing and lord knows um barnes and noble isn't going to take away you know the toy section you know to put more books in there (laughs) they don't sell as well um but this is the internet. The internet has enlarged it for everybody. You know, we have self-publishing. We have things like Free Press, Substack. We have Amazon Publishing. You don't necessarily have to be printed on paper anymore to be successful. Um, so. uh-huh. But, 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 sorry to interrupt you, but it is surprising how many people that review books mm-hmm. are still asking explicitly yes. for the printed that's tr- that's reader. true. I do too. I mean, guilty as charged. Um, and because I, if I were a publisher, I'd be scared to death of sending out like a galley or something and and having it end up in the internet. You know, there there goes your sales. But 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 to, in the reality of the situation, mm-hmm. though, is that you you know we have Kindles, we have Nooks, mm-hmm. you know, we have tablets, we have phones, and you do see people reading. People are more people are reading now than ever before. Like 
you know, not to be a naysayer, but people are reading. It's just, and I understand the audience has changed. Um, so I just had uh, so just, just a few curious questions for you regarding the creation of Heresy, if you don't mind. Um, so when people say you're starting a, an imprint, you're starting a new outlet, what what's that like? So what does that mean as far as like what people can expect? Um, what's the process like? Well, the process is like you have to establish um, the, you know, you have to establish this chain of interlinked steps from um, saying we are interested in publishing books and we are open for submission to actually holding a printed book in your hands. There are at least 50 steps, if not more, uh, from the initial thought of I want to put out books, I want to become a publisher and actually being one uh, with products in the pipeline and on the market. There are many, many, many intermediate steps. And um, yeah, it's a it's obviously um, a learning process and there are, you know, many discrete phases to it. You know, you have the acquisitions phase, you have to in the editorial and copy editing and pre-production process. You have the, the production, you know, the cover design, the typesetting and the internal design and the layout. And later on, you have, um, you know, the marketing and promotion, publicity and sale and distribution. All of that um, is is quite you know a learning curve uh, to to acquire and um, but it is possible because you know of the democratization of the the, the printing process and mm -hmm. and the internet makes everything so much easier yes um, probably by sheer numbers um, there are probably more publishers out there today than ever were at any given time in the history of humanity we have so many publishers there are tens of thousands and so today it is easier than ever in a way to publish a book and it is more difficult than ever to sell a book so so mm -hmm. since there are so many small and micro and mid-size and large publishers the number of titles floating around is enormous so you really really have to stand out um, to make a name for yourself in this overcrowded market of, of small to mid-sized publishers. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by our mission because I haven't seen this mission that Heresy Press has um, reflected in any other press. So, so we, we do serve, um, we do service a niche and we are, we are a unique operator. And, and so uh, based on that, I think we can we can look into the future with with some optimism, mm -hmm. but it will take a lot of work. So it takes enormous amount of work um, if you pull this up because you know we don't we ha I have a team of five, <laughs> okay? So so uh, plus external uh, readers when I send a manuscript that I'm not entirely sure about out uh, for for review, which I do quite frequently, but um, we don't have you know, a, a, an army of people to pull along. So um, I work regularly 12 to 15 hours every day, Saturday and Sunday. So so that's how my days go. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so it's hard work. You really have to lean in. And, and I, I can do this because I, I believe uh, so strongly and passionately in, in the mission of what we are doing. And it's a beautiful job. I mean, reading submissions, you know, the so-called slush pile, which most <laughs> most other authors uh, refer to disparagingly oh, 
you know, uh, what, what, what do you do about the slush pile? That's where I get to at the end of the day when I have an hour or two to spare. That's what I save. That's my dessert of the day. It's the so-called slush pile. I love to read manuscripts that maybe nobody else has seriously considered. And like I said, it's a treasure hunt. Every, every now, once in a while, you come across a work that just blows your mind. And, and there's nothing better than to say, okay, I take this under my wing and we, we are going to promote the hell out of this book because it is absolutely genius. I do want to do before we uh, before we close up. I do want to go back to where it started, which is the book that we are talking about, which is again quote nothing sacred outspoken voices in contemporary fiction. Um, we haven't really talked about it that much because mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil too much. It, part of the joy is is re- the stories will reveal themselves. Um, Twelve unique and original stories. Uh, now, twelve is twelve is twelve is a very nice um, sort of even number for a good anthology. Um, mm-hmm. But from what I read, that you've, you've received many, many, many more submissions. So if this book is successful, um, are we going to be – will we see a follow-up? Um, are there any plans for another anthology? Um, somewhat, somewhat. So um, we received at least 75 short stories. Uh, when I say we, that means Heresy Press, but also uh, my co-editor, James Morrow himself, a, a highly accomplished uh, writer of uh, fantasy and mm-hmm. uh, science fiction stories. And a contributor. Uh, yeah, he is a contributor yeah. and he is my co-editor. And so we, we uh, carefully reviewed all the submissions and uh, yeah, 75, we chose 12. That's, uh, you know, um, that's, that's a high rejection um, proportion. But uh, we are proud of each and every of these stories, and we have leaned in and uh, you know edited um, very uh, conscientiously and 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 sympathetically and uh, collaboratively with the authors um, all of these stories. But um, it's it's a tremendous amount of work, and producing uh, an anthology like that is tends to be much more capital intensive than um, just a novel. There's so many more steps involved. There's so much more copy editing. And um, so I would say that, yes, if there is a moderate success, I would like to repeat this adventure. Um, although by then I may have, uh, now my hair is only slightly graying, but I, <laughs> I may have entirely gray hair by the time we finish the second anthology. It's, it's, it's not just a work, but um, it just takes a lot of uh, mental strength to pull that off. And um, but I would be tempted. So yes, um, it's it's a labor of love, and uh, I could imagine doing it again. I'm not sure we will call it Nothing Sacred Volume Two or or another title, most likely. But uh, it's a possibility. Yes, it is. Yeah, and in. Again, I, I should say that right at, uh, not soon after, um, you also uh, follow up books. We also have uh, Heresy Press has Deadpan uh, by screenwriting guru Richard Walter, and yep. you you also have The Hermit by I love this byline like banker turned writer uh, Katarina Kurshikova. Um, what what a I love that. I that's exactly what writing should be. It should be um, promotion promoting new talent from wherever. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's exciting to bring out a, uh, a debut writer um, like Katarina Grishakova, whose novel The Hermit is absolutely fabulous and deals 
you know, um, Megan Daum, who was um, writing for um, the New York Times and 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 uh, other outlets, she said, you know, here's a Tom Wolf for the Instagram age. So um, definitely. Uh, and I just love the sincerity and the humor and the wit and, and the drive of this story and the insight behind the scenes of um, of the New York um, investment banking and, and, and hedge fund world. So that's that's really eye opening. I think and of course, we have Deadpan, which is an anti-anti-Semitic novel. Who else would take that on right now? A book, a, a, a satire against anti-Semitism. Not, well, not not Harvard. I'll say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. so, so gonna... and, and, and bigotry in general. I mean, it's 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 a satire against bigotry, with a special emphasis on anti-Semitism and how to make an, such an unfunny subject funny and approach it with a comical way. Way well, that takes. Um, a lot of skill and yeah richard walter does pull it off admirably i love uh, i just love the tagline of, of uh deadpan if i could just read it just real quick it says deadpan follows the misadventures of a vaguely anti-semitic west virginia buick dealer who wakes up one day transformed into the world's most popular jewish comedian and uh i i thought to myself back in the day that's something that mel brooks probably would have been all over uh, absolutely yeah the the punishment fits the crime the anti-semite uh, wakes up one day as as a jewish comedian so and of course it's a it's a great premise um and and the story has an enormous um a drive it's a it's a multiverse story too that it will just have you you know gape in wonder from beginning to end uh, reminds me of that mo- uh, 1970s movie Watermelon Man, where the the racist white man woke up one day to find out he was black and had to navigate oh, the world. Hey, it's it's it, see that's that's what we want. We, we, you need you need stuff that grabs you but also entertains you. And if it's well written, you you yeah. feel you feel nourished. It's not it's it's high protein, low calorie. But that's um, what exactly. But no, it's, uh, I would say this is a, about a good time. Like I said, we've had a great conversation, and I appreciate that. And I want to say uh, to anyone just tuning in now, which, which would be strange because it's a podcast, um, I want to say uh, you've been listening to none other than Dr. Bernard Schweitzer, uh, creator of the new imprint, Heresy Press, who has been on this episode to talk about his, the new book, Nothing Sacred, Outspoken Voices in Contemporary Fiction, due everywhere next month in January 2024. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Nathan. And Heresy Press is a new and fascinating uh, imprint that I think we'll be following uh, throughout its entirety. And we look forward to speaking again, Dr. Bernard. And thank you very much for showing up on the Pop Zara podcast. Thank you, Nathan. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And we'll see everybody next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pop Zara podcast. Remember to like, follow, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or service. 